a Podcast One production. A lot. And it was my good fortune to be able to go there on holidays in 2018 and then to go there for work in 2019 and then after the work, more holidays. And on that trip, I got to knock something off my bucket list. Nara. Now, if you haven't heard of Nara, it's the first capital of Japan. It's 1,400 years old ancient wooden Buddhist temples. One of them is the oldest wooden building in the world. There's tame air wandering around everywhere that actually bow as tourists hand feed them crackers. You can see this. Go look on YouTube. You can see it. Nara was absolutely as magical as I'd always imagined it would be. And more than I'd actually reckoned. Because something happened to me in Nara. Something I hadn't expected. I stopped eating mammals. I just didn't really want them anymore. And when I got back home, I stopped eating chicken. And then not long after, I stopped eating seafood. And within a few weeks, I'd become a vegetarian without really ever intending to. Now, that wasn't the first time. I tried to be a vegetarian for six years back in the 1990s. And it wasn't easy, even when I was living in San Francisco, which had plenty of vegetarians. So in the middle of 2019, confronted by my sudden turn into vegetarianism, I had to wonder, would this suck as much as it did last time? And the answer was no, mostly. Though it can get a bit monotonous. I cannot tell you how many egg and halloumi breakfast rolls I've eaten. Standard vegetarian fare. Now, if you haven't listened to the first half of this episode, it's a really good time to go and do that. Go ahead, we'll wait. Okay, so when I ended up at a Hungry Jack's in North Sydney in October of 2019, invited to sample their very soon-to-be-announced Rebel Whopper, made with a plant-based meat from CSIRO startup V2 Food, well, no one who I was with knew that I was a vegetarian. And from that first bite, I knew things had changed. This wasn't just good enough. It was actually good. And now we get to ask whether we're all going to become vegetarians without really trying. Could it happen before we even notice? Will we care? And should we? What's the future of meat? G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work and eat. In this two-part episode... We're taking a deep dive into how food is changing and how food is changing us. Why are we still eating meat? Do we even know if we're eating meat? Will meat come from animals? And what does that mean for the future of food, agriculture, and the planet? We're talking to the people transforming what we eat, learning what that means for what we'll be eating and how we'll be eating it over the next billion seconds. There's a basic 
dilemma with meat. We need it. We all need it. The more we get of it, the bigger our brains grow and the better the quality of our lives. Up to a point. Too much meat and, well, that may not be so great for you. Ask your cardiologist. But it's not really about any one of us eating too much meat. That's a problem that's easy to fix. It's about 8 billion of us all eating enough meat to live our best lives. That's a lot of meat. More, really, than we can sustainably provide. Here's Phil Morrill. Now, we heard from Phil in the last episode. He's the venture capitalist who brought together CSIRO's scientists with Jack Cohen. He's the Jack in Hungry Jacks to create that rebel whopper. The way we think about this space in main sequence ventures is we talk about feeding 10 billion people and the problem of how do we do that with much less planet than we currently use per calorie today. We've basically run out of planet, we need to make more food. And if you look for the areas where the most impact can be had, it is with some margin, it's meat. The way meat is generally farmed and produced today causes a lot of carbon to go into the atmosphere. Um, It also uses an awful lot of land and water. And even if we wanted to, we've kind of run out. So I think even if you speak to the most proud cattle farmer, they will say it's quite hard to make more. We'd like to continue making the amount that we make today, but it's hard to make more than what we're currently making. Phil's not exaggerating. After I spoke to him, I ran some back-of-the-envelope calculations, and what I learned confirmed everything he said. To grow the amount of meat on your average steer, it requires the amount of water contained in three Olympic-sized swimming pools, seven and a half million liters of water. On the other hand, the same amount of soy protein, and that's what they use at V2 Food to make the Rebel Whopper patty, that would only take one-sixth the amount, half of an Olympic swimming pool, just a bit over a million liters of water. So three pools versus half a pool. And that difference, it's not a showstopper when you're feeding just a few million people as we do here in Australia, unless, as is the case in Australia, water is in constant short supply, in which case you really do have to use your water carefully. You need to maximize the amount of protein for humans that you can create with each liter of water. It's as simple as that. And when you're not talking millions, but billions, when you've scaled up by a factor of a thousand, then those resource constraints don't have much to do with how much rain falls on Australia's farmlands. Then it's about how much farmland there is on the whole of the planet. And here again, there's not enough to meet the protein needs for everyone to live their best lives if we're all eating animals. Nick Hazel, the CEO of V2 Food, knew this would be the central problem he had to solve for his own business and for planetary sustainability. The problem to be solved was a sustainability problem, which I think is kind of useful because that's the real problem we've got. You know, that's not going to go away in a few years. That problem is is the problem that we have to solve. And... um, the Eat Lancet report kind of lays out the planetary boundaries. So what are the boundaries that we have to live within on the planet? And there's 17 of them. One of them is, is carbon footprint. There's a number of others that we have to live with, but that, that's a primary 
boundary that we have to learn to live with. And our diet is an extremely important part of that. And what the Lancet report sort of says is, look, you know, you need to have diets that have less meat in them if you're going to be living within the, the boundaries of what the earth can sustain. The trouble is, is that if you have a diet which allows you to eat 14 grams of meat a day, there's not that many recipes out there. It's certainly not in my diet, which says, oh, just take 14 grams of meat, take two teaspoons of meat, because that's not how we eat. We actually like to eat what we eat. So, so the design problem is, is how do you how do you let people eat what they like to eat and what they can cook, but at the same time allow them to live within the planetary boundaries? So if this is the basic dilemma, a dilemma of scale, then the solution seems obvious. Scale up the plant-based meats. That's exactly what V2 Foods has planned. First, they conquered the Whopper. Next, they're going after the average Australian consumer. Here's Nick again. The fast food and the Burger King and Hungry Jacks is important, but in terms of the total volume of meat that's consumed, it's a relatively small part. And in in Australia, if you're going to make a difference in terms of the amount of meat that people eat, you really have to be in retail. And it's retail mince, actually. So mince, mince sausages and burgers are probably the three, three biggest retail items. So always in the back of our head was, how do we get into that retail space? But the good news is, is that the same meat factories that um, that make burgers also make, you know, mince in trays. And, and we have another partner that is already doing that for major supermarkets. And uh, we did a trial with a meat factory, obviously with a full clean down and all the rest of it. Our products are vegan and certified vegan. Um, but in the course of a trial, we managed to make mince meat in in two sizes we've made sausages we've made meatballs and we've made patties and that was basically in a morning's work so that means that effectively if we take our ingredients which we manufacture and we you know our sort of secret sauce if you like we take it to a meat supplier and we blend it and mix it and then send it down the line it basically works like meat and that's important because it's got to work like meat for for the meat factory so that they don't incur extra costs uh, and Let's face it, they are the most efficient. They've been getting more and more efficient over decades, so no one's going to compete with them for efficiency. It's also got to work for the cook, so that when you cook the product, it works in the way that it, you know, most of us can only cook sort of seven or 14 things. That's, that's our repertoire. So we can't teach people to cook in a different way. And if you get both of those correct and it tastes the same, it works in the dish, then really the barrier for adoption is right down, and particularly if it's priced the same as meat or, or below the price of meat. So again, if we go back to the, the mission, which is to make a significant difference in the amount of meat that's being consumed, you've got to tick all of those boxes. That was clear for, for us right from the start. And that's what we're launching um, across the retail um, sector. As of now, we're going to be in Drake's uh, down in South Australia and Queensland, and then Coles and Woolies uh, soon after. Consumers are getting a new choice, a choice of a new kind of meat, a plant-based meat that looks and tastes and cooks just like the meat they've always known. And it's a choice that's radically more efficient than raising animals. That might just solve our protein dilemma, but it's not the only solution on offer. When we come back, we'll take a look at the big future of food, and it will blow your mind. There's another way toward massively increasing meat production sustainably. And it has nothing to do with plants. Quite the opposite. It's all about raising more meat. 
But Mark, you're probably thinking, you just spent several minutes explaining to us why more meat would be bad. And that's true if more meat means more animals and more farmland and more resources, which is what it has always meant since we stopped hunting and started raising animals for food. That looks to be changing. Hi, my name's George Beppu. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Val. At Val, we make what's known as cultured meat, meat that's new and different from anything else you've eaten before. Cultured meat? What? So that's real meat that's grown from the stem cells of animals rather than taken from the carcass of an animal. So the way we do this is by growing the same cells that you find in the meat that you eat today. Um, If you think of a piece of meat like a steak or a chicken breast, it's mostly made of muscle fibers uh, from an animal. There's a few other cell types in there, some connective tissue, some fat. But most of the meat that we eat is muscle, fat, and connective tissue. At Val, we take the cells that are responsible for repairing muscle, fat, and connective tissue, and we isolate those from a muscle biopsy of an animal, a little piece of meat around the size of an almond. We can then store those down for as long as we want, freeze them in an environment where they can stay viable for many, many years, and then draw on them and place them in an environment that convinces them they're still inside of the animal so that they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow into many, many more of themselves. And then we change that environment slightly and they turn into that final tissue type, that muscle, that fat, that connective tissue. So we end up with a product at the end that is made of the cells of muscle, fat, and connective tissue, but without involving animal rearing or animal slaughter in that process. So at the opposite end of the spectrum from a company like V2 Food, which pulls a plant apart to get at all the essentials, then puts them all back together so they can taste and feel like beef or pork or chicken, Vow Foods, well, Vow basically raises an animal in a vat. So this process looks a little bit like beer brewing, or it will look like that at scale. We'll be producing these in what are essentially these big bioreactors, these big stainless steel vessels uh, that maintain the right temperature, the right agitation, and just the right conditions to keep these cells growing and dividing, producing that tissue that we will consume as meat. So when the meat is ready, when the food is ready to be harvested, we take it out of these big stainless steel vessels uh, and we process it like any other food. Uh, We season it, we cook it, we package it, uh, or sell it, package it as raw product in a factory that will look really a lot like any other food factory. And here we can see Val Foods making some of the same decisions that we learned V2 Food made back in episode one. They're using existing meat factories, and it makes sense. Use what's already there, just bring in the vat-grown meat, put it into the production line. Now, all of this sounds maybe a little creepy... And again, it's probably better to think of this as something closer to brewing than farming. After all, we dump a bunch of yeast into a vat of grain, and that's how we've been making beer for 5,000 years. That's not new. So the idea at essence isn't spectacularly new, even if growing stem cells from animals is a bit weird. But we will have some time to get used to the idea, because although we can vat grow meat today... It's still not out of the lab. We're doing this process at a benchtop scale to really learn the ins and the outs, uh, what works and what doesn't. Uh, Right now we're producing a couple of hundred grams of this each week and really understand all of the different things that we want to change to make this not just as good as the meat we eat today, but substantially better than anything you can be served at a restaurant or buy in a supermarket these days. 
So right now, it is so much more expensive to produce cultured meat than it is to rear animals. Various companies will give you various numbers from a few hundred dollars a pound uh, all the way through to tens of thousands of dollars a kilo. And that's because everyone is still at this development stage, still learning how to do this efficiently at scale. Long term, I believe, uh, certainly, and sort of all of our modeling supports, this is going to become cheaper than rearing animals. But when they get it all worked out, when they can vat grow something that tastes and feels and cooks just like animal-grown meat, vat-grown meats can scale up very quickly. So for us, culturing meat, going from some cells stored down in our library to something that we can eat, takes about four to six weeks. One of the really interesting things about culturing cells as opposed to growing them in the animal is they grow exponentially. So if it takes us four to six weeks to produce 10 grams, uh, those are going to double every couple of days after that. And that volume can increase faster, produce mass much, much faster than growing individual animals. Rearing something like a cow takes around a year to get it to an age where it's ready to be processed for food. We can be producing that same volume of food in a much, much shorter period of time by avoiding having to produce the rest of that animal that's needed to support the bit that we want to actually eat. And then, well, then it's everywhere probably. So within a few years, let's be conservative, let's say five to seven years, you'll be at the supermarket and you'll have a choice of meats, animal-grown, vat-grown, and plant-based. They'll probably taste the same and cook the same, but it's likely over the longer term that the vat-grown and plant-based meats will be cheaper than animal-grown meat. Here's George again. And it's also worth mentioning here, most animal meats are getting more expensive. Um, Beef and pork certainly are. Um, Chicken is getting cheaper, but beef and pork are certainly getting more and more expensive. And so there will come a crossover point where it becomes much, much cheaper to grow this meat from cells rather than rear animals in fields or in sheds. And why wouldn't they be cheaper if they're consuming less water resources, less feed, using less land? It all makes sense that they should cost less when they get to market. Phil Moore, the VC behind V2 Food, sees the same sort of thing happening. Over the next five years, I think animal-based protein is going to become very expensive. We're already seeing the price go up. The drought itself drove up the price of beef and things like that. And it's starting to become more and more of a special occasion food. But mince, which is the, the world that V2 Food plays in, is probably 80% of meat in the world. If you think about the meat that we eat, it's shepherd's pies, lasagnas, bolognese, sausages, burgers, and then there's the occasional steak or something like that. And so there's a, there's a lot we can replace if we can get the experience right. It, you know, here's another, here's another example. In Europe, there's legislation being proposed now which is going to put a carbon tax on meat, which will add a significant amount to each kilo of beef and lamb that's sold. And as soon as that was announced, the food service industry just said, well, that's fine, we're just going to replace it with plant-based then because that is not going to go up in price. And so you can see a series of market dynamics that are going to occur Not to mention the fact that we all recently went to the supermarket to see the meat shelves were bare because of the demand shock of COVID-19. When V2 Foods at scale, the next time we have a demand shock around meat, we don't have to go and 
make more cows, which obviously you can't do instantaneously. We can just turn the knob up in the factory and just get more production and we can make more meat very quickly. And here's the one-two punch. New kinds of meat that are cheaper and that scale better than existing animal-grown meats. Now, either of those alone would be a game-changer, but put them together and they could produce the biggest revolution in agriculture that we've seen in our lifetimes. And one in which Australia plays a big role, because Australia is already well-known and well-loved as a beef exporter, as Phil notes. Australia competes terrifically well in this market, I think, because we have a strong global brand, Brand Australia, for making terrific food. You know, high-quality, safe, delicious food. The problem, historically, has been that we're limited in the volume of that food that we can make and the fact that that food, in particular fresh produce, has to make a journey to the rest of the world and it may not you know, may not make it there. What we can do is we can make a lot more volume and it will last longer um, so we can get all the benefits of brand Australia, especially thinking about an Australian meat. Many of the new technologies for making terrific food with science gives us the capacity to make delicious, nutritious food for a global market in contrast to selling just barley. And I think that's, especially as we're, we're looking at ourselves as a country now saying, what are we going to become when we restart the engine? and we become the new sort of commercial engine of Australia, what is it that we're going to be making? And, you know, I, I'd certainly hope we're making these higher value products for the world, not, not just the commodities. Australia already exports a lot of meat to the world. That will continue. But alongside that, we could well become the big plant-based meat exporter to the world. That's certainly what V2 Foods is aiming for. Here's CEO Nick Hazel. The fact is there's only a few of us in Australia. The growth in meat consumption is happening in Asia. That's where the, the biggest growth, from a low base, but it's it's growing. So that's actually where we need to be. And, and the way we kind of look at it is, is we want to be number one in Australia because we want to be part of that amazing export story where Australia exports meat to the rest of the world. And we want to ride on those coattails because we want to export meat to the developing world and to Asia because that's where the growth in meat consumption is. That's why we're going to need to double the amount of meat that's being produced in, on the planet. They love Australian beef in Asia. So will they love Australian plant-based beef? And what about that grown beef? Or is it even beef? Because this is where the story gets a little weirder. That grown meat doesn't need to be anything like any of the kinds of animal-grown meats. It could be completely different, as George Pepiu notes. One of the fascinating elements of cultured meats is we don't just have to think about what we've historically eaten as humans. The, the animals that we mostly eat, which is beef, pork, chicken, and lamb, make up around 97% of every mouthful of meat consumed on the planet Earth. There's 99.98% of land animals out there that we've never really been able to scale as food. 
And cultured meat kind of rewrites that paradigm as suddenly any animal which has cells, which is all of them, are on the menu for us. And we can do so ethically and sustainably. And so our whole approach at VOW is let's explore this entire biodiversity. Let's draw on these cells and store them as a repertoire of ingredients that we can use to create amazing new food experiences. And that may sound a little bit wacky and a little bit far out, but there's a lot of historical precedents that there's some really delicious animals that we could never, ever grow. There's all these old historical records of British Admiralty going to the Galapagos Islands and eating Galapagos tortoise and describing it as the single most delicious meat they'd ever consumed. Uh, there's stories of Pacific Island tribes hunting dugong species to extinction because they were so, so tasty. And these are animals that we could never farm in our existing agricultural paradigm. But cultured meat opens up way more variety that we can draw on. So fast forwarding 10, 20, 30 years, ultimately it's my belief and it's our belief at VOW that we're going to lose this one-to-one -one relationship between animals and the meat that we eat. And just like every other aisle in the supermarket, we're going to shop for protein as brands which we understand the properties of. These aren't agricultural commodities anymore, but these are branded products where we understand the experience. So 10 years from now, you might be walking into a supermarket and faced with a much wider range of choice of cultured meat products that are purely sold as brands without an animal in sight or an animal name in sight that you're choosing because they have the most nutrition. Picking something up on the shelf that's loaded full of protein, packed with omega-3s and full of micronutrients because you're watching your figure. And that may in fact contain the muscle cells of kangaroo and the fat cells of salmon and the cells from beef liver to give you that incredible nutritional profile. Or you might want to go for something really decadent, pick off something from the other end of the shelf which contains beef muscle and lobster muscle and pork fat for this just beautiful, fragrant, decadent, rich experience to celebrate a you know, hard week. There's going to be way, way more options enabled by the separation from having to produce and rear animals in order to eat meat. The future of meat and the future of food is making a hard turn from our past where we had to live with what we could raise or, in a slower context, breed. Now, now we're only bounded by our imaginations. And George Pepew has an active imagination. The parameters that we can change are essentially endless. Any element of food uh, that we think about when we think about meat or we think about protein, we can start to modify and explore. Uh, a kind of crazy example recently, we made a prototype, a meat prototype, which had a, a texture much more similar to white fish with the flavor of meat. We will see new meats, new flavors, new textures that we could never have imagined. We'll have access to all sorts of meats that would have been otherwise impossible to source. Rare and endangered and protected, but delicious. Whale meat, seal, Galapagos turtle, all of it. And all of it ethically sourced. This future is so close and yet so unexpected, it's going to come as quite a shock. It will change the way we think of food and the way we eat forever. And that's not just to the benefit of vegetarians like me. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether vegetarians or vegans choose to eat cultured meat products. The reason we're making cultured meat is to reduce the ethical and environmental impacts of consuming meat products. And vegans and vegetarians are already doing the best possible thing they can be by selecting that diet. So if they choose no longer to be vegetarians, I really, really hope they'll be choosing a cultured product over an animal-produced product. So the next time you're walking down the refrigerated aisle at the supermarket, 
have a long look at everything that's available. Because some of it could surprise you, and who knows, it might even delight you. And there's a lot more where that came from. What we eat, what we choose to eat, that's down to tradition. What we know how to cook, what's available to cook, and all of that is changing now. All of it will be completely different across the next billion seconds. Have these last two episodes gotten you to thinking about foods we might be eating in the future? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website or leave us a message on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want to know about the future. We'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. Big thanks to George Pepiu, Phil Morrill, and Nick Hazel for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Next Billion Seconds. This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening.